Friends, we're living in some really hard times. I mean, maybe everyone everywhere at all times in history could say this, but it seems really uniquely true right now. War, earthquakes, climate change, collapsing democratic structures, money-driven politics. There are times when I look at my kids or your kids and I'm overwhelmed with this strong emotion that's really hard to name. I'm sad for the state of the world they're inheriting. I'm confused about how to explain the violent realities of the world to them. I'm mad at the choices that people in recent history have made to allow inhumane and unsustainable policies to dominate our lives. I'm afraid about what sorts of violence or hardship they're going to have to endure. And frankly, I doubt my own capacity to make a sufficient change in the world for their sake. I feel helpless about that. I dread the idea of watching our kids suffer. And I guess if I had to sum it up, it's the uncertainty of the future. What's going to happen next and what that might mean for our lives, that's what rests at the heart of these overwhelming feelings for me. For some people in the world, the future looks so bleak that it's hard to imagine life continuing at all. Reading reports and listening to stories from Gaza this week was almost impossible to do without breaking down in tears. Thousands of people killed beneath bombs, beneath bombed out homes, hospitals, and schools. Parents having to write their kids' names on their kids' hands every morning in case their their kids are killed or maimed and they need to be identified. Millions of people commanded to flee their neighborhoods and towns only to find the roads and passages destroyed by airstrikes. Children begging for food and water while their parents stood by helpless to hope, much less provide the resources for basic survival. Guys, I feel equally helpless when I try to find my voice somewhere in this to offer a way forward. And it's especially hard when ideological justification for violence seems to rule the day. How can anyone live through these times without completely buckling under the weight of hopelessness? I don't have an answer. But as I approach this text for today, carrying with me this pro profound sense of insecurity and uncertainty, I noticed that I wasn't the only one struggling to see a way forward through bleak circumstances. Our text for today gives us this very strange conversation between Moses and Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Sinai. This interaction is coming near the very end of the book of Exodus, which is an epic story about God's deliverance of the enslaved Israelites from Egypt into the wilderness and the special designation of these people as beloved and protected by their God. This book is supposed to be a story of triumph, 
of decisive defeat of the powers of oppression and the full restoration of a people to love their God, to serve one another, and to freely practice righteous living, to honor Yahweh, the living God who breaks chains and keeps promises. But the people apparently hadn't read the script very closely. Because for the majority of this story, the book of Exodus, Moses, who is God's chosen prophet tasked with shepherding the people on this dangerous liberation journey, finds himself caught between the petulant masses of people and Yahweh, who seems to vacillate between the extreme poles of deep compassion and deep frustration. If you're looking for a religious origin story about the strong bond between a people and their God that they serve, do not read the second half of the book of Exodus. I imagine Disney momentarily considering a sequel to Prince of Egypt, but realizing quickly that things get really ugly after the famous Red Sea splitting. And the rest of the Exodus story is less of a kid's movie and more of like this really high stakes, often extreme version of a Seinfeld episode where everyone is yelling all the time and no one really understands why and no one learns anything by the end of it. The Israelites grumble and complain and sometimes nearly mutiny against Moses and Yahweh and that rebelliousness comes to a climax in the story of the golden calf in chapter 32, which is the passage right before our reading. The people decide to create a God of, to worship while Moses is up on the mountain with their actual God. Yahweh responds by denouncing them as a stiff-necked people, which is really appropriate because the term stiff-necked referred to oxen who refused to turn and change course when prodded and prompted. So that's an ironic scene, a stiff-necked, stubborn, bull-headed people creating an image of God as a bull that they could waltz around and they could yoke and they could worship ultimately in their own image. And it made Yahweh furious and Moses too. Moses responded harshly to the idol worship of his people by smashing the brand new stone tablets with the blueprints of Israel's divinely ordered society. But Yahweh responds even more harshly by threatening to abandon the people for the duration of their wilderness journey. The withdrawal of God's presence among the people would surely be a death sentence. But how much more betrayal and dishonor could Yahweh put up with? This is the background for the strange conversation that we read in chapter 33. I imagine, I imagine Moses a bit out of breath, having walked all the way up back to the mountain to discuss these matters yet again with Yahweh. What was going through his mind? Was he playing back all of the events that led him here to this place? A montage of all the miracles, all the near misses, all the dangers and divine deliverance could it all just end up in complete failure? I wonder how many of us can relate to this feeling. It's a, how did I get here kind of feeling. What went wrong? Questions like, 
what's the point of all of this? Or was this just a huge waste of time? Is there a purpose to the pain? Where is the happy ending? Do the decisions of stiff-necked people actually override God's good purposes? And is there anything that can be done to salvage life from the wreckage? We can tell from Moses' tone that the stakes have never been higher because he seems to rise to a new level of courage in this interaction that he hasn't shown yet until this point. Frankly, the way that he talks to Yahweh here in this passage indicates that he has absolutely nothing to lose. And he is prepared to risk his life to wrestle forgiveness and restoration from Yahweh on behalf of his people. He hits the ground running. Moses says, look, you told me to bring these people to the promised land. Who is going to go with me? You told me that you know me by name and that I've found favor in your sight. And if that's true, show me your ways so that I may know you. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. This is a really bold demand and a startling tone to take with God. One might expect Moses to come to Yahweh and say something more like this. These people, man, they're hard to lead. Am I right? No. Moses approaches and challenges his God to step up. You say you know me, but I don't know you. These are supposed to be your people, and you're supposed to be their God. But Yahweh isn't phased by it. He responds to Moses by saying, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Some scholars think that Yahweh is actually soft-pedaling here because of the promise. The promise seems to be directed only at Moses. And the word here used for rest is a derivative of the name Noah, as in Noah and the great flood. And in this interpretation, Yahweh is affirming Moses, but perhaps also offering Moses a reset rather than a continuation of the work. But Moses is having none of that. He comes back at God. If your presence isn't coming with us, he, he says us, then what is the point of all of this? You're the one who called us your people, who distinguished and dignified us. How else would anyone know about the love you've shown me and the care you've shown me unless you restore and reclaim this people? And incredibly, Yahweh responds to Moses by saying, Okay, I will do what you ask because I know you and I love you. And that should have been enough for Moses, right? Mission accomplished, disaster mitigated, crisis avoided, forgiveness achieved. But Moses, for some reason, doesn't walk away from the bargaining table at that moment. Show me your glory, he adds to his demands. Why is he still pushing? Didn't he get what he wanted? Is he just being stubborn, stiff-necked, brazenly demanding more from a God who has already given him what he asked? Or could it be that Moses has been asking for something else this whole time, but indirectly until now? See, in just these few short verses, Moses uses the Hebrew word to know 
yada, six times. Moses wants to not only be known, but to know. On the mountain with God, Moses is expressing profound uncertainty. How can I know that you will be with us, Lord? How can I be sure that you are for us and not against us? How can I be certain that we will be okay? Show me, please. Show me your glory. I want to know you the way you know me. And so, Yahweh places Moses in a cleft of a rock and tells him that even though Moses can't actually ever physically see God, that Yahweh intends to honor Moses' request. I, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. And we're told that Moses is covered by the hand of Yahweh for his own protection, and that Moses is able to see God's back. Perhaps more accurately, Moses saw the silhouette of God, the shadow, the space where God was. I'd like to stop here and simply reflect on this for a moment with you. I've read this story many times, but what caught my attention this time isn't the dialogue or the revelation of God, but the cleft where Moses is placed. A cleft is a space in a rock that's been split open. It's a jagged, rough space, perhaps the effect of gradual erosion, but probably also caused by a forceful collision or rendering, or rending. Clefts are the result of cleaving, splitting, tearing in two, a rather uncomfortable vantage point for a vision of God. I wonder if Moses, hidden in that cleft, was forced to remember the ways that his world felt torn asunder. I wonder if Moses had to sit for a while with how divided, with how split in half he felt, trying to mediate between two seemingly incompatible parties. And from that cleft, Moses was given a vision of the goodness of God. Not the face of God, not the future of the people, not the validation of his worthiness, not the promise of success, the goodness of God, which is only visible from the vantage point of the one who stands in the shadow of the divine. It's as if Yahweh is saying, you want to know me so that you can trust me, but I'm telling you that if you keep trusting, you will see who I really am. You will see that I am good. In fact, you will see that I am the source of goodness and wholeness, even while you remain physically stationed in the cleft in the in-between. And this encounter left Moses completely changed. The next passage tells us that Moses came down with new tablets and a fresh covenantal commitment from God to the people, and his face was literally shining. He had to wear a veil because his face was glowing so brightly. 
So friends of God, what if we also came to God during these times of extreme uncertainty, boldly, asking to know God, to see God's glory? What sorts of clefts might we be placed in? What clefts are you currently sitting inside, even now? What fissures, what cracks, what spaces of brokenness are you occupying which might actually allow you to see a silhouette of God? Hear the good news, friends. God is good. God is good. Even as we face all sorts of insecurity and uncertainty, we do so in the shadow of our God, whose goodness and mercy go before us and who will continue to lead us through the wilderness. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.